Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, you might have seen a story in recent weeks about Kendall Cummings, who jumped on top of a grizzly bear that had attacked his friend and grabbed that bear's fur and pounded him with his fist. And eventually the grizzly bear left both of them. They were actually on a hike in Wyoming uh, looking for antler sheds for caribou, I believe, uh, when the grizzly bear attacked them. And again, after Kendall jumped on the bear, kind of beat the thing up a little bit, it walked off, but then came back and attacked both of them again. Uh, They didn't so much as win that fight, but they did both survive, and they both happened to be alive. In an article I read this week called Rumble in the Jungle, it asked a number of people in the American population, if you had to go up against this particular animal, what is the likelihood that you would win in that fight? Um, Interestingly enough, Uh, Kendall said this about the grizzly bear. He said, before this attack, I don't know quite how you can think this, but these are his words. Before this attack, I had thought that I could take a bear on pretty easily. Don't know what he was thinking. Uh, There was a wrestler. And now I know that a bear is pretty legit. Especially a grizzly bear, pretty legit. So uh, Americans were asked, hey, if you took this animal on, do you think you could win? So... One animal, they said, was what if you had to take on a rat? Now, that's kind of gross, and probably my guess is you would say, hey, I'd probably win the thing if I could, like, dare to get close enough. What percentage of the American population do you think said if I took on a rat, I could probably win? Guess the percentage. Any? 80? 75, 93, 72%, guys are pretty close actually, 72% of the American population say, hey, if I took on a rat, I could win. A house cat, 69% think they could take on a house cat and win. Uh, what about a goose? Goose, geese are like, they could go a little crazy on you. What about, so what percentage do you think could take on, thought they could take on a goose and win? What percentage? Five, 50, 61 percent said they could take on a goose and win. The other day I was out running actually uh, over here toward Pittstown, and it was amazing. This like eagle came overhead, which was really cool. Kind of an early morning sun. Yesterday I happened to be up at Point Mountain up uh, near on the outside of Hackettstown, Washington area, and uh, up in Point Mountain was beautiful overlook there, and just this eagle was gliding through the air. It was incredibly beautiful. 30% of the American population think they could take on eagle and win. A king cobra, 15% think they could win that fight. A crocodile, 9. Um, elephant, and grizz- elephant and lion. Guess how many people think they could the percentage of the American population think they could win a battle with an elephant or a lion? Three, two, eight percent. Grizzly bear, six percent of the American populations think they could win a fight against a grizzly bear. Crazy, six percent. We're in a series in Revelation called Trial and Triumph. And what you have in Revelation is not so much this revealing of the end times per se, it's a revealing of the person of Jesus. 
And in Revelation, the veil is pulled back, and we see the dynamic, the clash between light and darkness, between that which is evil and that which is good. And what you find in Revelation is that Jesus is the ultimate one who is going to subject that which is evil and bring about that which is good. Uh, Sometimes, particularly, especially in the United States population, we can easily minimize sort of the power of evil. Uh, We often live in safe neighborhoods. Uh, We're often spared from the violence that happens in many other parts of the world. And so we often think that evil is relatively calm and passive. It's somewhat tame. And if we had to go up against evil, and we most are most of the time, we generally think, hey, that with a little more education, with a little more economic profitability, with a little more this, a little bit more that, we'll probably be able to overcome evil ourselves. The message of Scripture is evil is not that tame. Evil is not that calm. Evil is not that passive or placid. Instead, evil is violent. Evil is entrenched. And in the book of Revelation, what you have is the story of Jesus, the story of conflict, and that Jesus does ultimately rule and reign, and it's his power alone that can actually vanquish and conquer evil. In Revelation chapter 1, we've been diving into just pulling some nuggets out of Revelation 1 because it was so packed that even as we go on, we're kind of pulling some things out. So let me just go back and look at a couple of things, and then we'll kind of look at something else fresh from Revelation chapter 1. He says in Revelation chapter 1, this is the apostle John, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He says right out of the chute, John says he's writing about the suffering and kingdom. Most of the time, those two words do not go together in our minds. In fact, it's exactly why the book of Revelation is being written. It's being written by someone who's suffering. He's banished to the island of Patmos. Two others who are suffering, most of these churches are undergoing some kind of suffering and persecution for their faith. And so John says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom. Those are two things that are often difficult to connect in our minds and our hearts. We often wrestle with the fact that if if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus has all of this power, power, if Jesus is good, how is it that evil seems to flourish? How is it that that which is wicked, that which is unjust, how come that seems to be winning the day? And so John says, yes, these two things come together. There is suffering, and yet there's the power of God's kingdom. And sometimes if you're anything like me, you kind of lose patience, and you kind of wonder, is something going wrong Because of all of the suffering of those who are followers of Jesus, all of the hardship, maybe all the damage that seems to be being done in our world, can Jesus really be ruling and reigning? And so John says, yes, there's suffering as well as kingdom. And in some way or another, every one of us in this room or online feels that tension. 
We feel the tension between this is who God is, his power, his might, and his strength. And yet, man, this seems to be the messy world in which I live. This seems to be the dirt in which I walk. And so John brings those together and says, yes, the journey of life, and particularly those who are followers of Jesus, the journey of that life is, yes, living in the dirt and the hardship, but also Jesus is Lord. He has the kingdom, and he rules and he reigns. And so he normalizes this idea that suffering and hardship is actually part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just one other thing from Revelation chapter 1, and again, I kind of love Revelation chapter 1. I think it's becoming one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, Before we get into the church of Sardis that we're going to look at in a bit, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about this. He says this in verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So John has this vision, and it's on the Lord's day. He's in the Spirit. Now, this is the only time in the whole Bible we have those words, the Lord's day. We have the day of the Lord, which kind of is in reference to something else. But John says he's in the Lord's day, that he has this vision that he's going to record the book of Revelation. What is John referring to when he says the Lord's day? Well, Because it's the only place in the Bible, we can't really cross-reference it. But we know from ancient tradition that the Lord's Day was often the title given to the first day of the week when followers of Jesus came to gather together to worship, just like we're doing here this morning. That's the Lord's Day. It was the day they reminded themselves of God's truth. But here's the thing. So why do we gather this morning... Why do believers all over the world gather on the Lord's Day or the first day of the week? Why do we do that? Any takers on that? Yeah, the resurrection of Jesus. We gather together on Sunday, the first day of the week. It's called the Lord's Day because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, when John is talking about Jesus, the second descriptor of Jesus given, he says he's the firstborn from among the dead. But but here's another level of that. So why did Jesus, why was Jesus raised on the first day of the week? Why was he raised on? So we gather here because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Why was Jesus raised on the first day of the week? Any takers? It's, It's because he rose from the dead on the first day of the week as a statement that the new creation is beginning. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates on the first day of the week. Happens for six days, he rests on the seventh. Creation has been tainted by sin. We see the impact of that all over the place, the curse of evil in our world. And so when Jesus is risen from the dead on the first day of the week, it's a statement that it's day one of a new creation. That creation is beginning again. And so, which means, the reason we're gathered, listen to this, this is so incredibly important. The reason we're gathered here this morning, on Sunday, is a statement that together we're part of the new creation. You're not just gathered here because, ah, it's Sunday and I guess we go to church because Sunday is the church day. You're gathered here precisely as a defiant statement that, yes, I belong to the new creation. 
That's why we gather together on a Sunday morning. Jesus was raised from the dead. A new creation is unfolding. And you're here as a statement that you're part of the new creation. How does that kind of maybe express practically? Well, in many beautiful ways. What I love about Southridge and churches in general is that when we gather, there can be somebody making maybe a million dollars a year sitting beside someone who's making minimum wage. And we value neither of them any higher or lesser precisely because we're one in Christ. We're part of the new creation. We gather here together and so... Despite of how we look, the difference in, in our appearances, our socioeconomic status, all of the ways that we're valued and weighted according to the cultural standards of coolness or greatness or handsomeness or beauty or income or education, all of that stuff is sort of how the present creation weights the value of people. When we gather together, All of that goes out of the window because we're part of the new creation. And whether you're high income and high socioeconomic status or low income and low social status, every one of us are brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God, and we meet as a new creation. And so whether we make a million dollars a year, we can sweep floors and change diapers. And whether we have a no man's job, and nobody knows our name, we can lead worship and others in worship on a Sunday morning. That's the beauty of the new creation. That's why we get one, one last thing with that. So um, one other thing that we do here on a Sunday morning, typically, is we talk about an offering of giving our financial resources to God. Now, that's not just happenstance. Uh, Olivia mentioned earlier that we're storied creatures. So this is the story that we belong to, the story of the new creation. Here's what Paul said to the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. So an an offering, that's what he's talking about, for God's people. Uh, Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Listen to what he says. On the first day of every week, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What's Paul saying? He's saying when you come together on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1, one of the disciplines that we do, and you see this every Sunday, we actually say, hey, like part of our gathering, is that we give financial contributions to the work of God. Is that just saying, like, yeah, the gas bills are up and electric lights are up and inflation's high, like, yeah, let's give a couple bucks? Like, is that, is that what that's about? No. Your giving is an investment in the new creation. That's what it is. It's not just an offering. It's not just, like, ditching some money. 20, I forgot this. Let me see if I got 20 bucks. It's not what it is. It's actually an investment in the new creation. And we do it, we make a mention of it on the Lord's day because we're, we as people are God's new creation and we give as an investment in the movement of his new creation. Friends, we're storied creatures. That's the story of gathering together. John saw this vision on the Lord's day because in Revelation, it is about the coming movement of God's new creation into the world. That's why he has a vision, as John says, on the Lord's day. 
It's about the coming of Jesus' kingdom, which is really cool. Now we got to get flying. I love that stuff. And so I thought it was worth taking some time. And again, Revelation was so rich that we just couldn't get it all covered. So now we jump into the church of Sardis. So come to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The book of Revelation as a whole is, is one letter to seven different churches. But at the beginning of that letter in chapter 2 and 3, there's a snippet for each individual church. Uh, Karen Sykes is going to come and read while she is doing that. It's going to be a little map on the screens. Uh, the first one shows the general region that we're talking about. Uh, they're in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, where these churches are located. Zoom in a little bit. And then you see the individual places of where these churches are. So we've already looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Now we're at the church of Sardis. And by the way, this kind of just follows a natural trade route, maybe even a, kind of like a mailing route, something. that would, This was a natural way that the letter would have traveled to the churches. And so by now, it's being read to the church of Sardis. And in Revelation chapter 3, uh, Jesus has a particular challenge he wants to give this church. And so it's in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. As we've done on lots of weeks, why don't we stand? And uh, Karen is going to read this. And we stand kind of with a symbolic sense of presenting our own beings to God, of standing in his presence, standing before him as his word is read. So Karen, if you could read Revelation 3, 1 through 6 uh, to the church of Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet... You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for reading. You can be seated. So verse 1, as Karen Red starts out this way, to the angel of the church in Sardis, so this is the town of Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And now most of the time when Jesus is mentioning these words to the churches, he's pulling something out of their particular location that kind of connects with the challenge that he's going to give them. Uh, we know that Sardis was located, this town of Sardis was located on top of a pretty high mountain. It actually had about 1,500 foot cliffs, rock cliffs surrounding it. And so what happened with Sardis was simply this. They were known, they had a reputation of basically being impenetrable to enemies. They were basically unconquerable. They were located on top of these cliffs, and there was literally hardly any way that you could attack them. Later on, the challenge to Sardis is going to be, hey, guys, wake up. And the reputation of Sardis was like, hey, we're good. 
we've been here for a long time. We'll be here for a long time. We're good because nobody can conquer us. We're impenetrable. We're unconquerable. There's nobody that can take us over. That's exactly what Jesus is leaning on for his comments to this church. He says, the church at Sardis, the gathering of his followers, they've come to the point where they're pretty relaxed. They're good with stuff. How's their church doing? It's okay. Has been for a while. It's going to continue into the future. They're basically coasting on the security that they've had for a number of years. That's where the church of Sardis is. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but he said, he says, you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Jesus says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but instead of being alive, you're actually dead. You know, one of the things that probably is a great blessing to us here at Southridge and is also kind of maybe a warning that we need is that Southridge has a 152-year history of being in existence. In just a moment, I want to get to that. But here's the deal with Sardis. Probably Jesus is referring, when he says you have a reputation for being alive, probably two different things. Maybe the lesser thing first is this. A lesser thing could be they've got lots of activity, but not really a lot of impact. There's lots of busyness. The church calendar is probably pretty full, but maybe kind of minimal impact in people's lives. That could be, number one, part of the reputation. Most likely, it's not that. Most likely, instead, Jesus is saying to them, you guys have a reputation of being really active in the past. You were once vivacious. There was a sense of vitality about you. You had an energy to serve God's purposes among you. You made sacrifices in order to see his purposes move forward. You served and loved others with energy and passion. But now, not so much. Now you're just kind of like, hey, like, we're the church who's got a reputation for this. And instead of doing it now, you just rely on the reputation of what you did on the past. Friends, again, Southridge is incredibly blessed with 152 years of history. And here's what would be, it would be easy for us to kind of like sit back in our couches and rocking chairs and say, you know what? We're good. We've been here for 152 years. We can do nothing. We'll probably not go away. We don't have outstanding debt. Like, we're good. Look at all the stuff that God has done for 152 years. In May of 1870s, half a dozen residents were baptized in the south branch of the Raritan River. And we could recount lots of history of what God has accomplished through the people of Clinton Baptist Church originally and now Southridge Community Church. And we could kind of like sit back and say like, hey, like why stress? Like, why don't we just hang? Why don't we form more of a club rather than a church? And why don't we just all hang out and make each other comfortable? That's what we could do. I mentioned periodically that one of our commitments is, I don't know, probably for maybe 30 years, 35, it was preceded my time, 
is that Southridge has always given about 15% of its operating, 15% of the offering that comes in every Sunday literally goes outside of our doors. We actually increased that in December by up to 25%. In addition to that, around Easter, we have another giving focus. And then sometimes there's things like Ukrainian relief and crisis relief that people give additionally. And so like all told, I mean, probably 25 probably 15 to 25 to 30% of our income goes outside of our doors. It'd be so easy to say, you know what? Like, eh, like times are getting tough. Like inflation's kind of hard. Maybe we ought to ratchet that down a little bit. Maybe we ought to just kind of like be comfortable and, and take care of ourselves. We could literally, I've never done this, but sometimes I'm thinking like, man, you take 15% of all of our offering income for 30 years. Like I wonder what that amounts to. I don't, I haven't calculated that, but my guess is it's a lot of money. And we could say like, yeah, like we're good. Look at all that we've done. That's a, probably a pretty astounding, and actually, as I think about it, I'm glad, I'm glad I don't know that number. I'm glad we don't sit around and pat ourselves in the back and say like, wow, this is all the stuff that Southridge has done in the past. Because friends, we don't want to be asleep. We don't want to just rest on what God has done in the past. Instead, we want to move forward. Jesus says to them, for I have found your deeds to be unfinished. In other words, guys, there's still stuff to do. Don't just rest on your history. Don't just get comfortable. Just don't be proud of the fact that God's used you for 152 years and now you can coast. Instead, there's stuff still to do. We've talked a little bit about our Built Together 2025 focus. And we've said it before when we launched that a couple of weeks ago. It's not about organizational success. It's not about trying to accomplish more for accomplishment's sake. Instead, the reason that we do that is to force ourselves to be awake. We want to be awake to the needs in our, our community for families and children and students. That's why one of our focuses is families and students and children. We want to be awake to opportunities to impact our community and make the reputation of Christ good in our community. It's why we have Built Together 2025. In a couple weeks, we're going to be launching some stuff for year end, and you'll see some threads woven into that focus. Why do we do that? It's because we think our deeds are unfinished. Like, we're not just going to sit here and say, well, we've got a 152-year track record. We're done. Instead, we say, hey, what does God have for us in the future? How does he want us to move forward? Maybe I'll just remind you of a couple things, the way my brain kind of operates about this. Yesterday's activity does not equal today's vitality. Let me say that again. Yesterday's activity does not equal today's vitality. That's true for us as a church. It's true for your life as well. Yesterday's activity does not equal today's vitality. Another thing, booming activity does not equal spiritual vitality. Booming activity in your life, a a full church calendar, a church calendar with lots of stuff going on, a booming activity does not necessarily equal spiritual vitality. We want to be aware of that as a church. Revelation 3, 2, he says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Uh, We know that Sardis actually was penetrated, we think, two different times. 
Uh, somebody actually climbed up the rock cliffs at night and then opened the city gates so that intruders could come in. And so Jesus was saying, hey, you're accustomed to being asleep because you're so secure. You're accustomed to being asleep because everything goes well. He says, like, wake up. Remember the time that your city was overtaken because you got lackadaisical and lazy. And he says, don't do that as a church. Don't lull yourself to sleep on a good reputation. Don't lull yourself to sleep on lots of activity. They had lost their influence. They had lost their ability to be light. Their candlestick, as we saw in Revelation 1, is beginning to dim. Now, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, and it kind of applies to this, and it's something that I pretty wrestle with pretty frequently in my mind. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul is speaking to the people of Colossae. Here's what he says, and, and listen to this in the lens of what we're about to talk about. Paul says, to this end, I strenuously, I strenuously contend. Those are Paul's words directly out of Colossians 1.21. I strenuously contend. That's what he says, but he doesn't stop there. He says, I strenuously contend, listen to this, with all the energy... Christ so powerfully works in me. So Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Hear what he's saying there. And every one of us, we as a church, wrestle with this all the time. Probably some of us, and I'm going to ask you as I talk to you, think about where you are on this chart. Probably some of us in this room and some churches, man, we're great at like strenuously contending. We're busy. We're active. We're always doing something. We're go, go, go. What can we accomplish? What can we do next? And so some of us in this room probably are got some boxes checked on this side, and God is calling us to be... Like, hey, are you just activity-driven? Or do you do what you do with faith in Christ and allowing God's Holy Spirit to fill it and empower it? You do a lot, but while you're doing it, are you counting on the energizing work of the Holy Spirit to make it come alive? And so probably some of us got a lot of boxes checked over here And Jesus is saying, like, man, you're doing a lot, but honestly, it's mostly your energy. It's mostly your power. It's mostly your doing. And you're not doing it through faith in Christ and consciously inviting the Holy Spirit to empower what you do. You lead a group. You teach a Sunday school class. You lead kids. You lead students. You do whatever you do. You give money. But you're not doing that with a sense of, God, I'm entrusting what I'm doing to your authority and your power for your Holy Spirit to truly make it alive. On the other hand, maybe some of us have some boxes checked over here. And you're like, man, like I love to just come here and worship and open my heart to God. 
I sing to Jesus in my car. I love to sit and soak with God's word and just meditate and reflect on him. And you know what? You need to do exactly that. But maybe some, some of you over here who've got this checked, maybe the Holy Spirit's saying like, hey, like, you know what? Yeah, like you're sitting and soaking really well. You're worshiping God really well. But maybe there's some stuff you need to strenuously contend in, some action you got to take, some doing you have to do, some all in the game that you've got to invest in. And my sense is this is probably true for us collectively as well as for us individually. Like I wrestle with this with us as a church a lot. Like sometimes we're probably here, sometimes we're probably there. And it's just a balance of like, yeah, we need to be people who strenuously contend, who are active. Jesus didn't call us to just sit and soak. He actually called us to do stuff. But he didn't just call us to do stuff. He called us to be in Christ. Here's a couple of maybe statements that put that together. We don't want to be frenzied and frenetic. But we also don't want to be lazy and lackadaisical. We don't want to strive forward. I'm sorry. We want to strive forward empowered by God's spirit rather than driven to activity by our need to perform. We want to strive forward empowered by God's spirit, but we don't want that, that striving to be just human driven activity and our need to perform. We want to experience the strain of subjecting our flesh but we don't want to be burdened by the need to accomplish more. We want to be people who are active, who, yes, do stuff, who strenuously contend, who move forward, but also people who are empowered by God's spirit, who aren't just a bunch of human doings running around, but we're human beings who are in Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, and trusting that his truth is going to permeate that which we do. Man, What a powerful challenge, isn't it? It's the church of Sardis. He says, hey, let's stay awake. Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Uh, That when it says he will come like a thief kind of has some connotations of Jesus' second coming. It's most likely not what he means. He's saying, I'm going to come to you in some other way. I'm going to bring something that's going to wake you up. But whatever the case is, here's what he says. I'm not okay with you guys hanging out. Listen, friends, Jesus is not okay with his church just hanging out. He's really not. Again, that doesn't mean we busy ourselves to death. That doesn't mean we outperform others. What it means is we strenuously contend with the energy that Christ so powerfully works in us. He says to them, repent of depending on your reputation. Repent of your self-congratulatory message. Repent of feeling all good about yourself for your track record of effectiveness. Because what God's called you to is unfinished What God's called us to, it's unfinished. He's calling us forward. He's calling us to continue to serve him and be light. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Just 
kind of interests me with this is when it talks about soiling their clothes, later on he speaks of them being dressed in white. So soiling is often a sense of, of doing things that dirty the righteousness of Christ that's seen in us, that, that shades the beauty and purity with which Christ is seen. But here, here's my thought. Most of the time, we can kind of maybe list bad things that we do that soil the beauty and brightness of Christ being seen in us or our church. And we can think of hard attitudes like greed or jealousy or bitterness or envy, things of that nature that soil the reputation of Christ. But we can think of behaviors of immorality and other things that soil the reputation of Christ. But what strikes me is this. I'm not sure that I've really thought about the fact that does my inactivity soil the reputation of Christ? Does your inactivity dirty Christ's reputation? You see, friends, you're, you and I, we as a church, we're not called to not just do bad stuff. We're called to do good stuff. Are you soiling the beauty of Christ by being lethargic, lackadaisical, and lazy? Does Southridge ever soil the reputation of Christ? Because we're just good with hanging out and being a comfortable church that's been around for 152 years. Do you soil the beauty of Christ? But what you don't do, do we do that? Just incredibly convicting and beautiful thoughts. He says, they will walk with me dressed in white. Again, white kind of referencing the purity, the beauty, the righteousness, the goodness of Christ, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And then verse 5, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but we'll acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. We won't take much time to speak on that. It's actually a reference from Exodus 32. 32, you can go look that up if you want. Moses references that. Uh, the book of life is mentioned five times in the book of Revelation, uh, mostly toward the end, so we're going to dive into it more there uh, rather than now. But, but in ancient times, uh, cities would often have a listing, a, a census of people, the residents, and sometimes when a crime would happen of something of that nature, the resident's name would actually be taken out of the, the book. What Jesus is saying, what he's saying is not that you can lose your salvation. We know that uh, we are bought with the blood of Christ, not our own efforts. You belong to Christ, not because you keep the treadmill going, but because Christ purchased you with his blood. You're his son and his daughter. You have his blood. You have his DNA in you. You cannot lose the gift that God has given to you. But what Jesus is saying is this. Those who actually are in the book, those who actually have embraced Jesus, those who are his sons and daughters, those who do have life, their lives are characterized by strenuously contending with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in them. That's what he's saying. He's not saying like, ah, oh, if your name's in there, it might come out. He's saying, your name is in there. If it's in there, it should be characterized by these kinds of things. 
And you're never going to be wiped out of that. You're held not by your energy. You're held not by your effort. You're held not by your work. You're not held by your righteousness. You're held by the righteousness of Christ. But the expectation is that those who have the righteousness of Christ, that's actually lived out in their lives and it's seen. He's saying, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Not that he would blot out others, but that those who are in the book of life are characterized by those who actually take steps of action of obedience and who invite Christ's energy to permeate their lives. Well, I'm going to ask our team to come out, and we're going to close our service by singing the song, Come to the Altar. In pretty much every one of these letters, Jesus has said something like this, hold fast and repent. You know, we kind of think of repentance as sort of like, oh, this is a terrible thing. Like, repentance is actually awesome. <laughs> because repentance simply acknowledges, yeah, God, we fall far short. Keep on, by your Holy Spirit, keep on moving us forward. So I'm going to ask us to stand. Why don't you stand with me? And as we sing the song, uh, don't just mumble it. Don't just, sometimes we say, let the song wash over you. Don't let this wash over you. Sing it out. Be deliberate. May, this, may these be your words. And may this be a song of corporate Southridge Community Church repentance. May it be a song of individual repentance. May it be a song of us saying that, God, yeah, we fall far short. Sometimes we dirty our clothes by doing stuff. Sometimes we dirty them by not doing stuff. Sometimes we're a bunch of human doings, and we need to be more dependent on your Holy Spirit. So repentance is a gift, friends. It's a gift. And so let's sing the song, and let it be a song of repentance. Let it be a song of, like, gosh, God, we, we do fall short. Thank you for the lavishness of your grace and forgiveness. Enable us by the power of your spirit to live in a way that honors and reflects you. So let's sing this together as a song of corporate individual repentance, uh, of receiving God's forgiveness and committing ourselves to continue to follow after him. Let's sing this out. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason
Precious blood of Jesus 
John's word in Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this Lord's Day as we celebrate being part of the new creation. The prayer team is up here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to do that. God bless on this Lord's Day and have a wonderful day.